As we continue our way through the book of Mark this morning, we start again at verse 14 of chapter 13. If you want to follow along with me as I read Mark 13, starting at verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there He is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Lord, we thank You that You are a God who is good and faithful. You are a God who has created and planned and purposed all days. You decide the prolonging of days and You decide the shortening of days. You've decided all days for all time and You decide our days and our lives. And I pray, Father, You would help us to be a people who are needy and dependent upon You and a people who are bold and expectant of Your return. I pray You would help us to run faithfully, Lord, that we would trust all that You have told us, that You have given all we need for life and godliness, that we would live so without anxiety, without alarm, aware and awake and on guard. I pray You would give us grace this morning as we reflect on Your call to do so. And You would give us clarity for our own lives, how we might live to do so. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning as we continue through Mark 13, I remind you as we're looking at this passage, this is one of the many passages in Scripture that give us understanding of what we would say in study as eschatology, or the study of last things. Or if I can, which previously I could not, An eschatological mindset. Oh, praise the Lord. That we must be those who have an eschatological mindset. That we are those of thinking about the future. About last things. And and most systematic theologies, when they deal with the subject of eschatology, they break it down into two sections. Uh, Some call it a personal or an individual eschatology. And then a general or a cosmic uh, or a public eschatology. And as you're thinking about those two things, uh, Christians need to be thoughtful of both. And in this passage, we see Christ uh, being heavily thoughtful about a personal eschatology for believers and also making statements about a cosmic or a general eschatology for the whole world or the last things. 
So when you think last things, it's not just an argument over cosmic or general eschatology. How is God going to end all things? But last things mean you also will come to a time of last things, that your life will end. If you are not part of or living during the cosmic eschatology of last things, you still live now in the last days when Christ has come, he has made himself known, and all men must repent and put their faith in him. It's for that reason, multiple times in this passage, four times to be specific, we see Christ's command to be on guard. I'm taking a little bit of liberty with the first one in verse 5. In verse 5, it actually says, see that no one. But it's the same Greek root of blepo, which means to see. And four times in this passage, he tells us, be on guard. In verse 5, we're told to be on guard, but not alarmed. In verse 9, we're told to be on guard, and then follows that up with not anxious In verse 23, the end of our passage this morning, we're told to be on guard and aware. And in verse 33, we're told to be on guard and awake or alert, awaiting his return. And I want you to think about, as we think in those mind frames, your personal eschatology, that your life will end, that the end of life and the end of this is coming. What is your mindset? How do you view the end of all things? As one who is on guard? As one who has attention? But is thoughtful? That their eyes are open? They're aware and expectant? Are you on guard? Do you view yourself? And do you view the world as something you are on guard for? And I think it's important that we see how Jesus connects these commands because, again, he says, be on guard, but not alarmed. He says, be on guard, but not in anxiety of how you're going to live your days. He says, be on guard, you're not uninformed. And be on guard, you're not asleep. You're awake, you're awaiting, you have a purpose. See, this is not an on guard in the sense of which we think will be on your guard just to a common person. But this is a be on guard to a trained, informed, aware soldier who knows what's coming, who knows what the end means, who knows why things are the way they are. He has been fully briefed to all he needs for life and godliness. You're commanded to be on guard. And I think it's important, and we can lose the thrust of this text in a passage like Mark 13, where many Christians want to take this text and then they want to say, okay, this text is about eschatology. It's about the end of time. And so what I need to do is choose my end time system. What do I fit into? And then I place that on this text to say, how does this text do that? Or a more faithful eschatology uh, would be to take all of the passages that deal with that, if you're wrestling, and try to deal with those and say, okay, what does the end show here? But generally, in a passage like this, we can often lose the thrust of the passage. Because rather than moving through the passage, we spend our time on charts and diagrams, details and minutiae that the Bible does not 
clearly or fully declare. And so therefore, we spend all of our time studying the systems which we have made. The other alternative would be to ignore the things that the Bible says very clearly, the statements that that are made, and not to embrace those to say this should be a warning to us. As I told us last week, we we need to live in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that those things which are secret belong to God. There are details of the end that we will not know. But those things that are revealed belong to us. They belong to His people. They belong to the children of God. And so as we look at Mark 13, what we've seen up until this point is an expectation of personal eschatology or a preparation that he is telling you, what should you expect? And last week, or two weeks ago rather, we looked through those passages. We looked through that we are to be those who are on guard because persecution will come. And we are to be those uh, who are aware of what is coming. See to it that no one leads you astray, verse 5, because many false teachers will come. Do not be alarmed, verse 7 and 8, when there are famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars, because these things will continue. They are merely birth pains, but the end is not yet. To be on guard, and specifically to the disciples and all Christians, that your words will be spoken and they will be hated because of Christ. That you will be persecuted. And then this week we see a shift of not just an expectation of the end, but now an event. Look with me at verse 14. In verse 14, we see the contrast or the shift to the event. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand and then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The event. There's more to end times than just this event. Just the abomination of desolation. But as this is the event that Christ chooses to highlight here, this is the event that we will discuss this morning. And what follows or what is commanded as a result of this. It is an important event in history. Uh, It is here Christ puts as the event moving from expectation to actual event. He says, yes, you are to be prepared that no one would lead you astray, that you are not alarmed, that you are on guard, that you are not anxious. But when you see, when you observe, when this comes about, this event, the abomination of desolation, You need to know what that event is then, right? If Christ says the end is coming, when you see the abomination of desolation, when this event comes about, then listen to his instructions following. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down and enter his house. Don't take anything. Let the one who is in the field not turn back and take his clothes. Alas, for women who are pregnant and nursing in those days... Pray that it might not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and never will be. 
This will be the greatest tribulation of all time. So we want to know, what is that event? We have two things that help us to understand that event is uh, what that event is. One, if you look at Matthew 24, 15, uh, Matthew, as is his practice, communicates more so to Jews and communicates in greater uh, event detail, Old Testament detail than Mark. Mark's kind of the action guy. He's talking a lot about events and passions and people. Matthew is much more walking through Old Testament passages, stating the truth there, declaring that. And so as Matthew records this, he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So what does that indicate to us? What indicates this is speaking of a specific prophecy, right? He says, when you see this event that Daniel spoke of. So if we want to know what is the abomination of desolation, uh, then biblically, the best place we could start is where Christ told us to start. Right? He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, this event come about that was spoken by the prophet Daniel. So rather than spend multiple weeks in Daniel, let me summarize for you and I'll point you to those passages and, and it would be at your best interest to spend multiple weeks in Daniel. As Americans, you have a lot of time on your hands, a lot of difficulty and practice and food supply and clothing making and washing and all those things have been automated for you. You have time, like the Athenians, to listen and to hear new things, and you listen and hear new things all the time. Why not listen to what the prophet Daniel had to say? Say, said, what he had to say, because he said it throughout your week. If you were going to do so, uh, it would be in your best interest to listen to the whole book together, but you would find this abomination of desolation spoken of directly in Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11.31, and Daniel 12.11. In those three chapters, Daniel 9, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12, this event is prophesied and spoken of. In the first, Daniel 9, it's in a portion commonly referred to and known as the, the 70 weeks. If you're familiar with any study of eschatology, you're probably familiar with discussions of the 70 weeks. And Daniel mentions these 70 weeks, and he gives very specific statements about what is going to come about. As I mentioned previously when we talked about Christ coming in uh, in the, uh, what is commonly called the triumphal entry. And if you calculate that out, it's in 483 years from the time that Daniel decrees this would come about, it's a statement of Artaxerxes that Israel would be rebuilt, made in 444 or 445 B.C. And then you have 483 years later, or 62 weeks that go by, and Christ marches in, in the triumphal entry. Daniel says that at that time, uh, one will be cut off from his people. Very specifically fulfilling what Daniel said would come about. That Christ is crucified. He is cut off. He shows them righteous. Then it goes on to speak of a final week, a seven-year period, in where there would be an abomination of desolation. This time and time and, and a half a time, or three and a half years, that this abomination would come about. 
In Daniel 11, there is even more specific communication about it. It's the mention of the abomination of desolation, uh, where the temple is surrounded, offerings are ceased, the desolation is set up, and the prophecy of Daniel 11 is believed by most to have been fulfilled by Antichus IV. He was a Seleucid king, and this came about in 175 to 165 B.C. I'm not dyslexic. Remember, B.C. goes backwards. So 175 to 165 B.C., this king uh, of a Seleucid king, Antichus IV, you guys all remember him, right? Marched into Jerusalem, stops the offerings from being made. He sacrifices pigs on the altar, uh, and he does what is declared would be the abomination of desolation. Then lastly, in Daniel 12, it's mentioned again, the abomination of desolation. If you look with me, it's on your handout, starting at verse 1. It says, And at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn away, those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream, and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand, and his left hand toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who awaits and arrives at 1,335 days. But go your way until the end. You shall rest, and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. So we're good now, right? We can move on? Maybe you feel like Daniel. Maybe you heard all of Daniel 12. You heard of the two angels, or the two men standing on either side. And the man clothed in white. How, who is this man? Well, if you look to Daniel 10, it describes this man. 
as one in white linen with eyes of fire. And the description given there matches very much so the description of Revelation 1, 14 through 15, the description of Christ. And this man above the river holds his hands, swearing before the Father, promises what will come about. And then Daniel's statement, after all of that, after Jesus, a Christophany, or Jesus in presence, proclaims to Daniel, Daniel has the nerve to say, I don't understand. I don't understand when all of these things would come about. And what does he tell him? Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. He says, Daniel, you, you've heard what is said. You proclaimed what is said. You know it. But you, you go on. You live. Because these words have specific meaning for when. The time of the end. He, he tells him again, and he reiterates to him what has already been said in, Roman, or in Daniel 9. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, from the abomination that makes desolate is set up, and gives very specific numbers of days, there shall be 1,290 days. And then again, blessed is he who awaits and arrives at the 1,335th day. Very specific dates. Do you understand the exact purpose of those numbers of days? Me neither. So as he states those days, he gives very specific days in that the number which comes after it. And there's no reason for us to say, well, they must not be specific then because God, when he's specific, intends to be vague. No, that's not the case of God. Uh, When he's specific, he intends to be specific. And as we saw in his first coming, he was very specific about how Christ would come. He did not tell us all things, but that which he specifically told us was specifically fulfilled. As it was said that Christ would be a virgin, where he would come out, what uh, line he was born of a virgin. He also was a virgin, but that's not really the point of what's said there. Uh, That he was born of a virgin. And that he would uh, come about when he was and that he would die. And even the timing of his entry into Israel and him being cut off, very specific prophecies fulfilled. Not a timeline, not a, not a sorted out date, but very clear statements. And here in Daniel, we have similar. But if like Daniel, you, you feel like, I don't know exactly how this is all going to go down, uh, be comforted by the words that God gives to Daniel. He says, Daniel, this is for the time of the end. You do what? Verse 13, But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. What does he tell Daniel? He says, Daniel, you go on. You go your way to the end. You live out your days till the end of your time. And you will find rest, and you will be resurrected at the right time. He comforts Daniel. These days were not for him. These were for the future. He's proclaiming things that are future. And the prophets knew that. Second Peter tells us that the prophets proclaimed what they knew, and they searched what time and what manner of timing. Like Daniel says here, but I, I don't have the timing. I don't, what is the end of these things? When does it come about? He wants to know. It says the prophets inquired and searched carefully, looking to see at what time the Christ and the subsequent glories that would follow. And then it says, not for their sake, but for ours. 
they endeavored to do so. Daniel with the same heart and God with comfort for Daniel's personal eschatology. You wait till the end. You be faithful and you shall rest and you shall stand or be risen, resurrected at the allotted place at the end of days when it's all over. So what should we do with these three passages of Daniel that declare the abomination of desolation? Should we assume uh, that the abomination of desolation was fulfilled and finished in B.C. 165 to 170 under Antichus IV? Well, I think immediately all Christians would agree, no. No, we don't. Why not? Well, why can't we say it was finished, it was then, it was fulfilled, it was completed. Look, the events matched what happened. It's what was declared. It must be finished and accomplished. Well, if you do, you stand opposed to Christ. If you say it was finished and completed then, Christ says, no, it wasn't. Right? You go back to our passage. Christ clearly says, but when you see the abomination of desolation, he is not saying what has already happened. He's saying when you see what is to come. And so one from Daniel, we cannot say uh, this event is completed historically before Christ and has no future fulfillment. And I don't know of any Christian that would argue that, but we clearly see Christ says this has a future fulfillment. So as it's left in Daniel, it has a time to be fulfilled. And now we look at this passage and say, okay, have we seen this happen in history? Well, many would point to A.D. 70, and they would say that is the fulfillment of this passage, that the abomination of desolation came and took place when Titus, uh, Vespasian's son, Titus Vespasian, uh, took over the army and ruled as a general in the siege of Jerusalem uh, and did atrocities to them, and, and people were in misery and suffering and tore down the walls and did what Christ said at the beginning of this passage, that every stone destroyed as they burnt down the temple. And so then we ask ourselves the question, has this been fulfilled then in A.D. 70? Was it accomplished? Or was A.D. 70 merely a foreshadowing of the abomination of desolation to come? And similar as Antichus IV was a foreshadowing of the abomination of desolation to come. And I think from biblical texts, that would be our best assumption. Uh, doctrinally, as a church, that is where we stand. There will come times of tribulation and there will be an end. And the function of that end is the greatest tribulation that the world will ever see. Exactly what Christ says here. Why would, why would I say that? Well, for New Testament reasons, first, right here in our own text, always the best place to start, right? So let me give you three reasons from the text here. Number one, Mark writes this in his letter. He says, let the reader understand. What does Mark mean by this? Let the reader understand. He writes, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and Mark prefaces, same as Matthew, but let the reader understand. Who is Mark saying this is written for? The disciples? The twelve? Or the reader? I would say by Mark's own statement and the statement of Matthew, 
It's written for the reader. Let the reader understand. In the same way that Jesus says to Daniel in the Christophany, or God speaks to him in 12, and he says, this is for the end. Mark pauses to make a statement that makes clear, this is not for those who are hearing, but this is those who are reading. Yes, Christ communicated it to them, and there is truth for them in it. But as we see this event, he's writing for the sake of the reader. Let the reader understand. Two, Christ did not assume that this was fulfilled. While there was prior foreshadowing of the abomination of desolation written of Daniel 11, there is also future promises of coming eschatological uh, function. And we saw that in Daniel 12. If you look in Daniel, look or uh, reflect back to Daniel 12, he says that this will come at a time where his people are all delivered, whose names are written in the book of life. It says this will come a time, and when this is accomplished, uh, those who sleep in the dust shall awake, some to eternal life, and some to eternal condemnation. What is Daniel speaking of? A future resurrection, a general or cosmic eschatology. At a time when all people will be resurrected. As Daniel, not this Daniel, but our Daniel, reminded us last week in Revelation 21, and the future promise of resurrection and life with Christ eternally. And so we see that eschatologically in Daniel 12. Do we see that here in Mark 13? Yes. Christ connects this to future eschatological judgment or future global judgment. With tribulation unknown, worse than will ever be known. Look at verse 19 of chapter 13. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation, the creation until now and will never be. What is his statement? This tribulation that will come in those days. This tribulation that will come in the coming to and after the abomination of desolation will be such tribulation that has never been seen on earth and will never be seen again. This will be the final, the ending, the all-time, the completely crushing tribulation. Christ also connects it in future verses uh, that we'll look at next week with eschatological ends. He says that the signs that follow, the sun will be darkened, the moon will be darkened, the stars will fall from heaven, in verse 24. He says the return of Christ in power and glory and the drawing of His elect to Himself, that His people will be called and drawn to Him, in verse 29. And in verse 29 it also says, when we see these things take place, when this has come about, He is near at the very gates. Or He has approached ready for judgment. And so not only in Daniel do we see future or global eschatological statements about the abomination of desolation, but here in Mark, Christ connects the abomination of desolation to future cosmic eschatological events and says when those come. Later, Paul also does the same. If you look with me and it's on your handout, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 Verses 1 through 10. 
As you read 2 Thessalonians, their concern is that Christ has already returned. People are telling them uh, Christ has returned. He has come back. And so they are concerned that they have missed the resurrection or they have missed the return of Christ. And as Paul writes to him, he attaches these very things to the return of Christ. In verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians 2, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word, or by a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. And the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until it is out of his way. Verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Verse 4, we see the description that matches the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel 9, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12. In verse 8, we see the death of this one who commits the abomination of desolation, the lawless one, is killed by Christ at his appearance. In verse 9, we see the power and the deception of the lawless one, that he will do false signs and false wonders by the power of Satan, and the wicked will join with him. These descriptions all follow the description of rebellion, of growing wrath and tribulation, of the actions of Satan and the Antichrist that are all declared in the book of Revelation. And so, should we then assume that these events have taken place, or should we take them, as I believe Christ is stating, as a sign, as an ever-present sign to all of the earth, that the reader will understand that when this abomination of desolation has come, then He is at the very gates. Those people will see the end. This will be the worst time of tribulation and suffering. We could spend much time working through Revelation 6 and on and speaking of the desolation that comes because of that. The tribulation. Where not just many people die and suffer, but a third of all people are killed in just a few plagues. A third of all sea life dead. A third of the entire earth burned. Cataclysmic things happening on earth in the judgment of people. If we make the assumption that this is, and it's a fair assumption because it's the statements of Christ, the greatest tribulation the world has ever seen, and nothing since creation has been like it, and nothing following will be. Then it seems far more fitting to see this as what is declared in the book of Revelation. 
I think the book of Revelation is the last point I'll give you in the New Testament's assumption of these things, why we should take this as an event to come. We should take this as an event to come because it is the assumption of Christ uh, in his statement of the tribulation. Also, it is the assumption of the book of Revelation that it speaks of things to come. As you look at the book of Revelation, I'm just going to point to two quick passages about the purpose of the book. Revelation 1, 1 through 3, as it's in your handout, it says, To show his servants the things that must soon take place, the words of this prophecy. The book of Revelation is written as Revelation. It is written to declare what is coming. It is the final revelation of Christ for earth. It is to declare the end. It tells us of all things from how it is going to come about written to the churches at the time in chapters 1 up to 6, and then following of the future to come, and then finishing where Daniel took us last week in Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 22, all of our eternity with him and with Daniel and with all believers, our Daniel and the other Daniel, who will stand with Christ. And John states that in the beginning of the book of Revelation, that this is words of prophecy. Verse 9 tells us the author, John, the apostle, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus that was on the island called Patmos on accord of God and the testimony of Christ. So should our expectation be then that AD 70 was the completion of this end-time event that Christ points to. Well, another reason I think no is that the book of Revelation was written in the 90s, not the 1990s, when things were weird and pants were baggy. In the AD 90s, when domination uh, was carried out by Domitian, Titus's younger brother, who reigned in Rome in the 90s AD, and who was probably the greatest of Roman emperors to cause tribulation to the Christians, uh, the one who martyred many, and the one who sent John to Patmos in exile, where the book of Revelation was written in A.D. 90s. So all of that to say, uh, how, how do we take then this event? And I, I'm done with the events because we're only dealing with the one Christ addresses. I'm not giving you a chart or the future in times or all of those things. If you're curious where we fall in all of that, last week I put on your handout our doctrinal statement of the future. What do we believe will come about? And you'll see that in both personal, that you will die and there will be judgment before God. And in the cosmic, that God has made clear His plans and purpose. And that God plans at the end to display His glory and who He is. And you can look at the details of that. And that He will return. And that is an imminent return. And that there will come tribulation before that. And following the tribulation will be a millennial kingdom where Christ reigns with His people. And it will be the final act or the final declaration that He is the God over all things. And then we will with Him move to, as Daniel preached last week, the eternal state. As He has judged all, condemned all, shown that it is not just Satan who rebels, but all of mankind. And there is no one that saves but Christ. So what do we do with such a passage then? If this is written for us, but maybe not us, right? Could you, could you feel that way? Could you feel kind of like Daniel? Why, why do I need to know 
if I'm not going to live through. And, and that's what I would call a selfish personal eschatology. When you want the end of all things to be about you and your timing, and not Christ and His timing. When you want all things to wrap up in your time, and I think many of us fall into this at times, older men, and please stop me when I become this older man who frequently proclaimed the end is coming, right? I remember an older man who proclaimed it was coming in 1988. I don't remember when he proclaimed it because in 1988 I was six years old, so I was not really thinking about the end of time. I was thinking more about snacks. But, and I remember as an older man, again, hearing that same man proclaim the end was coming. And my cynical, youthful thought at the time was, what's coming for you, friend? Because you're old. Whether the church will be raptured or all the end will come in your lifetime, I don't know, but your lifetime is coming to an end. And while that might have been in cynicism and foolishness of me as a younger man, not listening to the wisdom of an older man who is saying, things are getting incredibly bad, there is wisdom in considering that whether this time comes for you now, or whether this time is a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, two thousand years from now, should he tarry, what do you do? Well, Christ has already told us, and I'll remind you, he tells us four times in this passage be on guard, be awake. Do not be alarmed, be alert, be aware, do not be anxious. And this morning in verse 23, be on guard because I have told you all this beforehand. What should we do if we find ourselves in the last days? What should we do if, if these last days are coming? What should we do if, if they appear to be very close? The same that Daniel was commanded. Be faithful. Move forward. Trust Christ. Rest in Him. And know that you will stand in the last day with God. What does it change for you? Well, in one sense, it informs you. Should you find yourself at the time, should the temple be rebuilt in Israel, and should some man make peace on the earth, and should there be a period of peace, and then he should arise and commit the abomination of desolation, declaring himself to be God. Well, then what should you do then? The text is very clear. The urgency of escape. Verse 14, flee to the mountains. Those in Jerusalem, get out of Jerusalem. Verse 15, don't turn around. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter the house, nor take anything out. Do you hear how he says it? Don't, just go. Don't go to the house. Don't run and grab a few things. Don't assume it's impractical to flee with nothing, right? He's saying not to say it in a humorous way, but it is humorous in my mind. I don't know how else to do it. He's saying leave the house with dad, not mom, right? What happens when you leave the house with dad? Let's go. Wherever we end up, we'll be okay, right? We leave the house with mom. Maybe this isn't how it works in your house, but in my house... Lauren's like, the kids need a jacket. It's going to be cold. I'm like, I've got a jacket. What do they need a jacket for? Well, it might get cold. People don't die of cold. Let's go. It's time to leave. Right? Well, the kids might get hungry and they need a snack. But I'm not packing a snack. What do they need a snack for? Well, they're little. They might get crabby. They might get grumpy. They, they probably need a snack. 
I might get crabby and grumpy too if we don't leave pretty soon. <laughs> right? What does he say? He says, leave with dad. That's not what he says. But in my mind, that's what I heard. Don't grab your jacket. Don't grab provision. Don't take anything with you. What is most urgent is get out. Leave. Because what is coming is not something you want to be there for. Flee. Flee to the mountains. This is a different instruction than what Christians are called to do. It's get away. Flee. Run. Hide. Go to the mountains. And, and this is, I think, maybe what pushed me to the mom-dad analogy because he makes a statement here, and alas, for women who are pregnant and nursing in those days, right? He just says, this is a horrible time to find yourself with child. Why? Because the difference of leaving with mom and dad. <laughs> the kids might want to go with me because it sounds fun and quick. And an hour later, they're like, we're hungry and we're freezing. We should have listened to mom. He says, woe to you. Alas, what a burden if you should find yourself as a woman with child in those days. Why? Because your maternal demands are urgent. You must care for them. And that will slow you down in fleeing. It will slow you down in running. It will create burdens of flight. It's just a gracious, kind way for him to say it. And then verse 18, pray. Pray that it does not come in the winter. I feel like this is so gracious of Christ because we often think, if He's told us when things are coming, why should we pray? Or if we know that God only saves, why should we pray for salvation? Let's just take that one. If you know that God is the only one who saves, why would you pray for salvation for people? Because God's the only one that saves. <laughs> pray to Him. Because he already knows it's going to come about. He already knows what's going to be done. Yes, because he's God. And what has he commanded you? Depend on me. Because I'm the only way these things come about. Christ has compassion and mercy. Woe to those women who find themselves with child in those days and pray that it might not be in winter. The extent of tribulation, verses 19 through 22. We've looked at it prior, but I'll, I'll read it again. Verse 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation that has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. He says again in verse 21, when someone says to you, look, there is the Christ, or look, here He is coming, and there will be false prophets and false teachers perform signs and wonders to lead many astray. That this will be a time of utter chaos, of the worst tribulation of all time. And there will be people coming out from the woodwork declaring that they have the answer. They have the solution. They're going to free and save mankind. And he says, do not go to them. Do not follow them. They will come about. And, and this is in one sense judgment on the earth. That as the earth has looked to every solution other than Christ, under the great tribulation, they will come with all their solutions, and their solution will not be solved. Their problem will not be finished. The only means of finishing is repentance and fleeing to Christ. But there will come false teaching, false deception. And lastly, the comfort and the command. Verses 22 and 23 says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise 
to perform signs and wonders, to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. There's a phrase that I think is incredibly helpful. The warnings of Christ are to establish the endurance of the saints. The warnings of Christ are to establish the endurance of the saints. When Christ warns of the consequences of sin, He is not saying, if you are Christ, you are condemned if you sin. He is warning that sin will condemn you. And He warns out of love. And His warnings are not meant to condemn the church, but to give the church endurance. For them to lean into what He has said. And He says the same here. Be on guard, for I have told you all things beforehand. He warns, and he says it is to such an extent that there will be false prophets, false preachers, false teachers, signs and wonders going on that Christians must have their eyes open, not be grabbed by the shiny distractions, not be compelled by the false lies of men, but to run in what Christ has commanded, to be on guard, because it will be so bad, if possible, even the elect could be deceived. But that statement, if possible, means not possible. He doesn't say, and it's possible. He says, if possible, it will be so bad it will appear to the point that there is no hope for that believer, that they will just be wrapped up into all of it. But that's not possible. Why is it not possible? Well, he already told us also in verse 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. He says He will not allow things to come to a point that would cause His elect to fall. He will in this, the very cutting off, the very numbering of the days, He has planned and purposed. As we take hope that He is the King over all things, as I said last week, there is no eschatological system outside of Christ's eschatological eschatological system. He's the only one that can say it. And Danny Salcedo. That it will be accomplished according to His plan. And while we strive and debate and function with one another trying to figure out the details, we are best served by listening to what He has said and letting our debate be there, and not in charts and systems over here, and by trusting as a believer, it is all in His hands. He has, as He promised and as He stated, told you all things beforehand. You know what you need to know. That doesn't mean all Christians know all they can know. It means it's all here. It's all written. He's told you all things beforehand. It's available. Will you listen? Will you hear? Be on guard. Because He has told you all things. So what should Christians who know what is to come do? Well, Second Peter 2, 9, I think is incredibly helpful for us. It gives us encouragement that as things look bad now and things will get worse, is when the abomination of desolation comes and there is tribulation that has never been seen, when the tribulation that rides up to that comes, and the comforts that we're afraid of losing aren't even on our mind should we be here. Because we're going to be worried about the urgent things 
Like, how are we going to feed the baby? How are we going to keep warm? How are we going to keep cool? How are we going to survive? We can take comfort from the words of Peter in 2 Peter 2.9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Who is that referencing? It's referencing Lot, who chose to place himself in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God came to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And what did he do? He preserved Lot. This would never have been my description of Lot were it not for the book of 2 Peter. He says that righteous man, Lot, was tormented day by day by what's going on in Sodom. But God preserved him. And he uses as an example, he says, So then God is able to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. We trust in the power and the purpose of God. He does as He said, and He is able to keep us both in the midst of severe trial, should it even be the great tribulation, to keep us as He punishes the wicked, waiting for the day of judgment. And then as Daniel referenced last week, 1 John 3, 1-3, through 9, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. In verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. What does that mean for you, Christian? The same it meant for Daniel. Live your life. Run for Christ. Know the end times are coming. Listen to what He has told you. Don't be caught off guard. Be aware. Look forward to the future. And as your hope is in the coming of Christ, do not be alarmed. Do not be anxious. Be aware as He has told you what is coming. And be awake awaiting His return. Or as John says it, and everyone who hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Christian, let that be your hope. Endeavor to understand the global eschatology, but do not lose sight of your personal eschatology. That you will stand before Him. How will you stand? Clothed in the righteousness of Christ? or condemned in the rebellion of the world, holding fast and unwilling to hear the truth that there is only hope in Him. Only He is pure. And those who find their hope in Him, who find their righteousness in Him, seek not to earn their salvation, but to live in their salvation, to be purified as He is pure. Let's pray that God would give us such grace to live as such,